Hey everyone, uh, welcome back to another episode of Breaking the Ceiling. Uh, today I'm going to be talking uh, to an interesting person who I, whose party I crashed and uh, that's how I got to know her. Uh, and I think it's a very unique product and a very unique concept, but I don't want to give away uh, any surprises. I'm going to be interviewing today uh, Niharika Goika, who is the founder of Boombay. Hey Niharika, welcome to Breaking the Ceiling. Thank you, Ashwin. And uh, I'm so sorry I crashed your uh, food launch party. I'm really happy. I think you were one of the most interesting guests that we had at that party. And, uh, so thank you. And I, I, I'm, I'm glad that a friend of mine dragged me along and you know, got me to that party. Uh, so before we jump into Boombay, I want to uh, know a little bit about you. What did you do before Boombay? Cool. So uh, before Boombay, uh, the predecessor to Boombay was Co. I don't know, maybe that's a brand that some of you all have heard of, but we, uh, we used to make only salad dressings. Uh, and way before that, I actually studied nutrition. So I have a master's in nutrition and exercise physiology. I was studying in New York uh, and uh, came back in 2015 and worked for an environmental NGO for about like a year's time. And I sort of came full circle back to food. Started Arugula & Co, started building that and then kind of pivoted to Bombay and we've just launched that, so. Um, Excellent. Yeah. So, Bombay. Yeah. That's a fantastic, <laughs> give me a little bit more about how did okay. Bombay come along? So, um, so, at the time that I was building Arugula & Co, I kind of had the feeling that like, hey, listen, we've got a great product. We have something here on our hands. But I mean, interestingly enough, I thought that we had product market fit. I didn't think that we had brand market fit. Um, so my entire journey started of, I went to the Fireside Ventures Conference and, uh, you know, I had, a, I had the, the opportunity to meet a bunch of really interesting people there, which is where I was introduced to the idea of brand. So I came back from that conference and I was like, okay, first things first, if I'm looking at sort of reworking this concept a little bit, um, I need a brand strategist. Let's build from ground up. So I interviewed a bunch of people and I found this wonderful consultant based out of Bangalore and, uh, we went through this whole year's process where we did a, like she and I did the consumer research ourselves. Nice. We broke that down ourselves. We, you know, sat with uh, the participants themselves. Uh, and then we were sort of, the team was in a room and literally a classroom together. And we were trying to think about it. It had been a year since we were just doing the branding. And we were like, what do we name this thing? What do we name this thing? And it came down to two brands. So one was Pataka and one was Bombay. Mm. So, <laughs> So we're like, okay, we love Pataka, but like there's something about Bombay. Like the idea that we were building from the brand idea was always creativity, innovation, uh, flavors. You know, that's what seemed to really excite our audience. And so boom for us means explosion of flavor. And Bombay as sort of an ode to, to our city, which is kind of a confluence of culture experience through taste. Uh, and that was an important aspect of it. The second thing was that I wanted it to be easy to say. So now, funny story, I was uh, doing the consumer research and, and I was asking one of the participants, hey, so, you know, what do you have with your lunch? And she was like, you know, what, what is that brand, that, that epi, epi, epi gamia brand? And I was like, that is the Arugula & Co problem right there, right? Like, that's why we cannot continue to call this brand Arugula & Co. So, so it, has to, it had to be really easy to say, it had to be memorable. And the third thing is that we are uh, not interested, but we do want to be open to exports. And if we are to do exports, the brand has to tell the story of India. So, Bombay, as in again a reference to Bombay. So, that's kind of where it came from. That is 
very fascinating and I love that you're a very hands-on uh, founder. Uh, I was actually talking to my team and I was asking them, you know, so who's your contact point yeah. at Bombay? Yeah. They said, Niharika. I said, no, no, I know she's a founder. Who's your contact point? <laughs> Sharon was like, no, no, it's Niharika. I'm yeah. like, no, no, but who do you coordinate with? <laughs> yeah. She was like, I coordinate with Niharika. I'm like, are you serious? Like, she's like, you know, coming. And I was blown away by that. You know, that's... Um, it's very good to see that you're involved in like literally like testing of every product yeah. and you're looking at it. Uh, it. It shows the attention that you're paying to you know, all the details. And I know you have a background in it, uh, so that may be helping you. But uh, that I think is something you shouldn't lose. Because as you get bigger, people start losing interest in the small things. But it's the small things that have the biggest impact, right? Like quality control, uh, innovation. So the other day at your food launch, I saw the amount of you know, variety that you have and the kind of team that you have. And I think you've done a fantastic job on both the product as well as your team. So we'll, we'll talk about the product first and then yeah. we'll, we'll come to your team. Yeah. So oh, there were very unique flavors. You've, you know, uh, gone behind something a little different. So tell me a little bit about that process. Um, so again, also it was, uh, that came from brand. So I was very, very lucky to find Chef Aditi. Uh, she's phenomenal as you've met her. Uh, and so what she was really great at is that she's a very lateral thinker. She attended every brand conversation that we had with our designers. So our designers were also fabulous and you know we went through that whole thing. So the research that uh, you know the brand strategist and I, Anusha and I did was that people, we, we literally set a hierarchy. We said okay flavor, then health and within health this is what seems to be important. Then we've got ingredients and then we've got sustainability. We said okay this is then how we're going to approach the brand. We gave that piece of research to our, to our designers and they said, let's, let's put an even more, like, let's put a spin on this, uh, like, let's build it, build on this concept. So they came out with the idea of innovation. So they said, okay, flavor, but what within flavor? So they said innovation, creativity, they used words like that. And then we sort of narrowed down on who the TG was. So the TG for us was people who love to cook and to eat. Uh, people who were the food influencers in their group, people who would be like, Oh, I know this restaurant that's open. It just opened last week. Let's go there. Or I know this new brand that's launched. Or like, hey, come over for dinner today. I'm going to make you something completely crazy. So the experimenters, the creators, and you know, we saw Bombay as sort of the inspiration. We saw this. We saw Bombay as the spark to that process for those people. Um, so based on that, Chef Aditi took that idea, and uh, and she said, let's do something crazy with this. So she started thinking and she was like, hey, listen, Kokum is a souring agent. Why is this not being used in a salad dressing? Because in a dressing, you always have a souring agent. And in India today, we're so used to using non-native souring agents. We'll use things like vinegars. We'll use things like lime juice, you know, so somewhat native, but the concept is not. So she sort of started, you know, really building. Our idea was also, also always to build on native ingredients. So she, when she said Kokum dressing, I was like, Aditi, you've captured Bombay. You've understood it. Like, that was it for us. So we, when we were doing the product mapping, we said, okay, we actually did want to build a ketchup. We still do. We said, we'll build a ketchup, but we'll lead with coca. Um, and it was, all, it was all her. It was all her thought process is, and innovation. That is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, what I also saw at the launch yeah. is you had this nice map of India with yeah. all the ingredients. So tell me a little yeah. bit about that. that I, I found yeah. that very fascinating. So... Um, so again, this goes back to when I was studying in grad school. My, uh, my professor was this 87-year-old woman. Uh, she's known globally as the matriarch of the Eat Local Thing Global movement, one of the 12 founders of this movement back in New York in the 70s. 
So I was sort of studying under her and I was like, this is, this is just nuts. She was literally telling me why the vultures outside my window were dying. Like in Bombay, right? And that turned out to be a food systems issue. So I was very inspired by, you know, by building sustainable food systems. Until date, it's still like my driving force. I'm doing Bombay because I believe in better food systems. I believe that companies can be built on, you know, with better food, for better food. And that's where the ingredients come from. Because unfortunately, what seems to happen across the world and in India, I think is that you go to like these incredible restaurants. You'll go to your Michelins. In Bombay, you'll go to like say a mask or an Eka. And you know, I love what those guys are doing. Like they're really showcasing Indian ingredients. But why should that be limited to the space of a restaurant? I like my idea was always impact at scale. Like it had to go. We had to take that produce. And India has such phenomenal produce. And it's been such an insane journey for me to go down because literally like you'll find like you'll find like the randomest peppers, you know, and you'll be like, I don't believe that this exists. And I mean, I can tell you the story about like, for example, the Jayur peppercorn, which we haven't even used because we just we did. We didn't even know how to use it. If I make you try that, Ashwin, it's unreal. Like I have tasted camphor. I've tasted floral notes. It's a peppercorn, so you obviously taste a lot of that woodiness, that, that aroma. And then you taste like things similar to the Sichuan peppercorn, and you taste this over 10 minutes. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> that's <laughs> like, that's mind-blowing. It's insane. Yeah. And then like after that, your palate is numb. You can't taste anything else. Like, <laughs> and like Chef Aditi really tried. She was like, let's try and build like a dressing out of this. And we really tried, but like it's just such a complex flavor. Correct. And, and like, you know, and that's what that entire map was about that, like, hey, we've actually sourced 69 ingredients mm. from across India, mm. all regenerative, mm. and we're showcasing what India has as produce. And hopefully we'll be able to take that outside of India as well. That is fantastic. And yeah. this is a brand that you've just launched? Yeah. Like that was two a few days ago, ago, two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, launch, yeah. Right? Uh, where do you see uh, this being used the most? Are you looking at... Uh, tier one cities, tier two. What what is what is what does the future look like? Like what is the next one to two years? Um, so I think that there's an opportunity to build a D two C condiments brand for sure. And if you know the D two C space, at least uh, over COVID, over the past couple of years, what's happened is that a lot of volume for D two C brands is coming from tier two, tier three cities. So like I think the stat is about like forty percent or fifty percent now. Which I read that and I was like, that's crazy, but. Also, that made a lot of sense to me because I was like, you know, these guys probably don't have access to this. And D2C, obviously, the model opens it up for that. So I think over the next uh, two years, we definitely have some very, uh, we have some sales targets, some revenue targets. I definitely see us growing within India significantly before we're able to take it out. Um, and I think I was mentioning this to you that day as well, that like, why is it in India that like we are dependent on condiments? That, like the idea of a condiment is from the West. So the idea of a condiment, like if you go to a cafe, it's like ketchup, which has now sort of been Indianized, but it'll be ketchup, mustard, and mayo, right? But that's not the Indian palate. The Indian palate is Shezwan, chili caramel, and mm. you know, still possibly your ketchup. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I think Bombay can uh, sort of help bridge that gap, actually build a condiments range that is in new form factors like salad dressings, like stir-fry sauces, which Indians do seem to really like, but built on Indian palates and built on Indian ingredients. So in another year or two, I think a success metric could be you go to a restaurant to have food. 
you see and you actually there. see Bombay, not yeah. two or three, but actually maybe six exactly. sauces. So exactly. like when you go to a Chinese restaurant, how they give you the traditional exactly. six sauces. Now for all restaurants, you can have a mix of. Or you fly on a plane and you know, you've got Bombay right next to you with your like sandwich or, you know, whatever it is. So I, that's a very uh, innovative way of looking at it and also I think very aggressive way of looking at it because cracking that market which has been traditionally <laughs> hammered with just you know like ketchups and mustard. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be a uphill battle, right? Yeah. But uh, do you have any specific strategy in mind or do you believe in the power of the product? How do you see this becoming a success? Because it's not just enough to have a great product. Hmm. enough people need to yeah. you know know about it to kind of ask for it and so how are you planning to approach that um so i think that's also where the d2c model helps uh, a lot of it is just straight up guerrilla marketing cold calling that's helped a lot uh, we do have quite a few contacts in the industry as well you know over the past 5 years that we've built with the rugland co um so definitely planning on leveraging those but you know when i was speaking to another entrepreneur uh, something that really stayed with me uh, cuz like he had a similar product to ours uh, as in premium and niche and you know and he's like oh like this large horeca business sort of takes it from us and i was like why but why are they taking this from you and he said i think that you know no matter which industry you're in they value innovation and we've been very very clear about the fact that our products are innovative we've been very clear about the fact that our branding is extremely innovative and attractive uh, and i think that hopefully that should that should hold some convincing power because i mean I, i'm being pompous but it's <laughs> <laughs> no but uh, yeah. I, I think another important piece in this whole journey is going to be the partnerships that you create Definitely. right which yeah. will open up uh, a lot of doors and give you multiplier effects so yeah. one of the things that we did at equinox was we partnered with zomato and swiggy mm. about 4 5 years ago sure. and that really exploded our yeah. auditing business from like 24 auditors went yeah. to 700 auditors in 6 months yeah. So the right partnership can actually, you know, just catapult you. Yeah. So, do you have any of those partnerships in mind? You're like, okay, you know, this if you are able to crack this, it will move the needle. Um, I mean, I have ideas. Like for, okay, so let me put it this way: like we, um, we're a premium brand, and we're okay being a premium brand for the next few years because like you can always move downwards, you can't move upwards. So, which is why I mean, for me, like an ideal airline partner would be Vistara. but bistara business class right and i think that if that's a deal that we can crack that would be unreal for us i think that even within the oberoys uh, maybe a vilas property won't take us but the oberoy will the regular oberoys will right maybe a taj will take us a taj and oberoy uh, you know like hotels like that if we can figure out a way to for example like at a live counter have like a stir fry sauce is a big bowl with our sample bottles customers can go there pick through it you know see whatever they want toss it up nice. it's a very different way of looking at a buffet table like a buffet table correct yeah uh, have you explored uh, and maybe i maybe it's too early at the moment but have you explored partnering up with restaurants where they can people can try your sauces they yeah. can see your sauces so i think that may be a good way of yeah. capturing the right audience the newer restaurants that are coming up is that something that you are looking at as well definitely so i think the cafe model is very appealing to us hmm. um but the way that i would do that is different mm. see look cafes today unless they're a large chain like starbucks mm. cannot actually move volumes and uh, a starbucks might not actually take our product because of the premiumness right and we cannot you know Correct. match their no. price points Correct. but i would do it as a marketing activity i would mm. happily do that as you know let's do a co-branded menu let's put 
let's do a like toast, tofu there with our smoked chili sauce or you know like a ramen with uh, with you know our miso ginger sauce mm. right so stuff like that I think would be phenomenal but for marketing and we're already we've already got a bunch of those collaborations in the pipeline fantastic um, but not necessarily to move the needle on no, revenue no sir it's not directly a revenue uh, mover however the discovery problem absolutely. gets sorted because absolutely. your audience yeah. knows about you mm -hmm. and has tried out your product absolutely because yeah. a big challenge uh, that people face in D2C is if they've not tried your product and if it's a completely new brand they've never heard before mm -hmm. then they feel like they're taking a risk Absolutely. right but if they've tried the product somewhere mm -hmm. or they've seen it associated like I remember mm -hmm. uh, Rob Presley had done this with Starbucks yeah it was on Starbucks shelves for a few months sure the needle didn't move as much yeah. but just the fact that they were on Starbucks shelves mm. elevated the brand mm. other people approached them to you know like hey you guys are there can you come to us and that was a very strategic yeah. move so having just mm -hmm. being that visible in that range yeah. will allow these people to try out a product, yeah. be aware of it, and then then they're comfortable ordering Absolutely. online. Absolutely, so, for sure. So I think yeah. things like that. But again, those models are like very very high burn. Yes. And I mean, we know what ended up happening with raw pressery, right? Of like, of so I'm, I mean, as an entrepreneur, I'm a little bit more cautious than that. Uh, we are looking to raise a round of investment, not right away. But Correct. you know, since it is self-funded today. I'm a little bit sort of, I'm always looking at the ROI. Of course. You know. <laughs> no, so you always have to keep an eye on the bottom line. You have to always keep an eye on ROI. Yeah. Uh, let's shift gears a little bit. And uh, instead of not talking about a product, I want to talk about your company, right? And the culture that you have at it. Uh, at the event itself, I could see such a diverse culture. And I could see the enthusiasm in every single person's face. How did you get to that? How did I get to that? So my team is really small <laughs> and we've built it over like two or three years, I would say. Uh, and I think the first believer in me was, was Chef Aditi. And the way that we met was just unreal. I was working out of actually Soho House and I was sitting down at the bar and I was like, you know, I asked the bartender, listen, I am, I'm looking for a chef. I need someone to help me build this. Uh, and there was this random guy who was passing by. She's like, hey, you come here. You're in hospitality, give her a chef. So he gave me Aditi's number and uh, I called her up. And uh, if you know Aditi, she does not answer calls. So she did not answer my call for a very long time. Finally, I got through to her and she's like, oh, I'm in Bangalore. I live in Bangalore. I'm coming to Bombay in a couple of weeks. We'll meet. She obviously did not. Okay. <laughs> and 10 months down the line, uh, I was in a really bad place emotionally. Like I was actually like going through depression and... And I was just like, work was in a bad place. And, you know, I was just mm. like, I don't know what's, ha what's happening. And I was like in this moment of desperation where I was like, I'm going to go through literally all the chef's numbers that I have on my phone. And, uh, and I'm going to just call all of them up and just see what happens. Mm. Um, and so I found her and I'm like, I haven't spoken to this person in a while. Let me try her again. So I called her up and she's like, oh, OK, actually, I'm in Bombay. Like, I'll, I'll meet you like tomorrow. And I said, cool, sounds good. So we met up and two hours later, it was like done. Like it was like, <laughs> and like, if you knew the kind of, you've met her, of the course. caliber of chef that she is, is unbelievable. Absolutely. Because like, she's one of India's top private chefs with a super low profile. Um, you can't, like, I could not find her. I couldn't Google her. Um, she was not Googleable. Nobody had heard of her. <laughs> like she was that undercover. Mm. And for some reason, I believed in her and she was crazy enough to believe in me. And, uh, and I think that that's where it started. I was like, you need the person who's the first believer. 
I hadn't tasted her food for six months, by the way, because the pandemic hit. <laughs> and then like we just like one meeting. So I hadn't met like I hadn't I didn't know what she was capable of. I just trusted her and she trusted me. So it started from there and then we, you know, we found Namrata and we found Nidhi and, you know, we found like all of our boys just recently as well. And I think that what I look for more than anything else is just passion. I know, I've known since I decided to do uh, a Rugla and Code that I can do this till the day that I die. Uh, I can work on food systems, I can build a business on food systems in whatever expression. So I look for that passion mm. in the team. Mm. And then I'm a lazy entrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> Because if I know that the team is driven, you know, like if the person is driven from something that's coming from within, I don't have to hold the stick to them. And which is kind of really great because I have a system, like I have an OKR system. I'll do like a catch up call with each person who reports to me every Tuesday. Um, so it's very rare to see a startup already have OKR. Like it took, <laughs> it took us 15 years to yeah. reach OKR. I'm so glad to see that you guys are doing it. Yeah. Right off the bat, right? Yeah. So is this something that you learned from Arugulanko or is it something you started over here directly or? Um, been doing it, I think, for about six, seven months now. And Brilliant. again, that's, uh, I encouraged, I pushed Namrita to do it. And then she pushed me back. <laughs> uh, so, uh, earlier, you touched upon a topic which very, very few people talk about, which is when you're running a business, uh, there is loneliness at the top that you can't discuss everything with everyone. You can't. Uh, founder depression is a very real thing. Mm -hmm. So how did you deal with it? I went to a therapist. Um, and then I didn't really go back to her. <laughs> Which is good. She's so good you didn't yeah. need to go back. <laughs> well, I wish. But, <laughs> but I think I just like pulled myself out of it. It was just like, um, I like, my, my drug is working out. Mm. So I just good. made sure that like, I, I indulged in my drug. <laughs> good. And then again, like, I think that I'd just been at it for so long mm. that, you know, without really any wins. And then like, you know, finding Chef Aditi kind of also pivoted that direction for me. Mm. It gave me, a re really renewed my hope. Mm. Um, and I'm not someone who's prone to depression. I'm generally like a very, very happy mm. person. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, it was very like strange for me to be in that space for like, you know, those few months that I was there. But I'm glad that uh, we spoke about it because it is not something that is discussed as much. It's not, yeah. And But the funny thing is every uh, founder that I've spoken to, at mm -hmm. least one-on-one, -on -one, mm -hmm. has confided that, you know what, like I've sat and cried and yeah. this and that. Yeah, and, but yeah. that doesn't get, obviously it doesn't get displayed I mean, or discussed in the public medium. But I think it does need to be, it does, you know, sure. spoken about, for example, uh, covid was a bad time for almost any business, yeah. right? Every business I know has gotten hit. Yeah. And it would have obviously affected the teams, obviously it affected the founders as well. Mm. But again, not too many people kind of did much about it, spoke about it. So yeah. uh, one of my very close friends, uh, he's a VC. Mm. And uh, we were on a Zoom call with like five other VCs and we were working on a deal for a different company. And uh, he was two minutes late. And he said, I'm so sorry, hey, uh, my therapy session, yeah. you know, kind of ran. And I was like, I, I, I'm like, so glad you yeah. said that out loud. You could have just made an excuse. Yeah. But I'm so glad that you said, oh, thank you yeah. so much. Right. And yeah. because it's something that does require discussion, but Definitely. you know, which doesn't get without a doubt. Founder depression, I think, is something that people should talk about. And uh, I think there is a very large need for a founder community. Definitely. Where people yeah. 
can get together, founders yeah. can get together and discuss things that they otherwise can't talk yeah. about, right? Or just like crib. <laughs> just, <laughs> yeah, because you need to crib. Who do you crib to? As yeah, a like, to especially if you're like a sole founder. I mean, I'm very lucky. Like I do actually crib to like, you know, my team. Mm. But like you do need a place where you can just crib. <laughs> Just let it all out. Yeah. Right. So there are some things which you can do that about. There are some things which yeah. you can't do that about. Right? Yeah. And uh, so tell me a little bit about uh, your motivation to do what you're doing. What's your core motivation? Impact at scale. Okay. Definitely. So I mean, when so before I sort of after I worked for the NGO for a year almost, and then I sort of took a break, and I I'm a very like. Uh, I'm a very, I wouldn't say a deep person, but I really like look within a lot and I've always been very pensive as well as a child. And I always had this thing that like, hey, I need to figure out what is that one thing that's for me. I don't know why, but I just always, I was always looking for this since the time I was 15. So in undergrad, I studied history. Then I moved to nutrition. Then I was like, wait, I'm going to go work for an environmental NGO. And I was like, no, I want to come back to food. Like food is definitely my thing. But I sat down with like a paper and pen and I did this exercise over two months where I literally wrote down questions that interested me. So it was just like, um, you know, how much of India eats organic? Uh, how many fruits and vegetables do Indians eat? Uh, what are farmers earning? What, is, what are the farmer problems? Why are farmer suicides happening? What is the core issue? So I was looking at all of these things and I sort of realized that my interest areas um, fall within three buckets. So the first thing was behavioral nutrition, which was basically the intersection of psychology and nutrition. The second thing was nutritional ecology, which is basically like food systems. Um, and the third thing uh, was, uh, was public health and nutrition. Even I'm forgetting now <laughs> the three things that I <laughs> built Arugula and go on. But in either case, so I was looking at nutrition from a very different lens uh, rather than, you know, here's your diet plan, lose some weight. Um, so I saw all of that and, and then at the same time I, I was like, okay, there are three areas that I can go into. There's public health, um, sort of governments, uh, philanthropy or start a business. And then I really broke it down in my head and I really think that today businesses have an opportunity to make a huge impact. Uh, you know, I was exposed to B Corps at that time. I was exposed to companies like some of my favorite companies, Sweet Green, Patagonia. And it really got me thinking that, hey, like if every company in the world was actually built on sustainable, responsible practices. Global warming wouldn't exist, poverty wouldn't exist, sanitation issues wouldn't exist, or they'd be greatly mitigated. Um, and that's kind of what, you know, Bombay is all about. It's about, as much as it's about, you know, exciting food and exciting flavors, it's about a better system of business. And we want to show that this can be done in India. Uh, do you think it's possible for a business to be profitable and sustainable at the same time? Definitely. I think that it'll exist within the premium market. But okay, here's here's a, the really interesting thing. With with food systems, and I think this will apply to most other you know areas as well, um, the issues are always at the bottom. The issues are with the farmers. They're the ones who are struggling. So it's about how you build that value system. I'm taking what they're doing. I'm hoping to empower them and monetize that with the people who can afford it. So in some sense, it's like in creating that value, okay, is you can pull profit out of there. So, so it's like a Robin Hood. Kind of ish. Robin Hoodish kind of system. Kind of ish. But yeah. if you're able to figure out that equation, then you'll actually be able to create an impact at scale. 
If we can, yeah. So if we can really, really scale this model. And then, I mean, see, look, there's always upward integration, downward integration. We can monetize our supply chain. I think that's a huge asset that we have. And if we can encourage, for me, the biggest thing is that if we can encourage other companies to do this, I think that's impacted scale as well. You know, we can show people that, hey, we've got, we're building a D2C company with glass bottles. This is our solution. Use it. We're open sourcing this. This is our supply chain. Use it. Come to us. We'll help you. We'll connect you to our suppliers. This is how we thought about this problem. Please build sustainable. Please build responsibly. And uh, I so think that that's where the impact will lie. In uh, 2022, every C-level meeting I have, yeah. the word sustainable comes up again and again and again and again. Uh, first question is, how are you guys sustainable? So like, mm -hmm. how is Equinox sustainable? Mm -hmm. And uh, so I keep, when, when I got asked this the first few times, I thought, oh, they are just trying to assess whether we are sustainable yeah. or not. That was just their segue into asking us, hey, what can we do for them? Yeah. Because the next question is, <laughs> So we tell them, oh, we are doing these yeah. 15 things. They're like, oh, okay, what can you do for us <laughs> to yeah. become more sustainable? Because at the top, this is a very, very critical issue. I think with the whole ESG reporting coming up, uh, you know, the environmental social governance reporting coming up for corporates. And now that I think that's for the top thousand, but it's now going to start coming down uh, with uh, things like the single-use plastic ban, which I think is a fantastic move. Fabulous, yeah. But in the next three to five years, there are going to be a lot of radical changes that the government is going to make. But I think even before that, I think it's going to be corporate social responsibility instead of the donating money piece, which is one thing, sure. working on sustainability. So, right? so we've done a few things at Equinox which have helped us become more sustainable. Yeah. And at the same time, we're using it also to become profitable. Like for example, mm. very, very simple thing. All our properties today have solar yeah. power. Oh, that's fabulous. So yeah. all the lights yeah. today run on solar. Oh, fabulous. Not the ACs, but at least the lights run on solar. Right? Uh, we're using a lot of recycled stuff. We're using... We are recycling so many things. Mm. We are the first lab to, I think, have compost pits, Ooh. which nobody thinks of. I mean, we don't generate that much waste. If I ever needed a reason to keep sticking <laughs> with with Equinox. <laughs> so, but yeah. the idea is today there's a very large gap where companies want to be sustainable, mm -hmm. but don't know all the ways that they can do it. Yeah. So uh, I've been actually working on something where how can we help mm -hmm. companies and people become more sustainable right yeah, yeah. but I, I i like your thought on how that went uh i want to know a little bit about the kind of mentors that you have in your life sure um okay so different kinds of mentors i think that uh, i was again lucky enough to have a vision mentor which was my professor back in grad school she sort of changed i would say the trajectory of my life um I, uh, I had a mentor, um, again, a professor, um, really incorrigible guy. <laughs> Fabulous, insanely intelligent. Uh, it took a lot of patience to sort of sit with him. But he, uh, he taught me a lot. And he basically taught me, he introduced me to systemic thinking. Uh, and the idea of mental models and things like that. So, um, so, you know, that was really, really cool. Um, my dad is a mentor. My dad is an entrepreneur. And I think like for like the everyday stuff, one, obviously, because he's so accessible to me and I can trouble him at any time. <laughs> but I'm like, dad, I'm having this issue at work. And mostly it tends to be HR related stuff. Interesting. Yeah. Because I think that as a founder, like, you know, if you're lucky enough and I am lucky enough today to have found some fabulous people to work with me. But, you know, they're looking, they know their job better than I know their job. So it's better to leave them to it. Correct. 
which means that my job becomes mostly managing them. Uh, and that's the stuff, those are the nuances when you're trying to build an egalitarian organization. You know, uh, those, are, those tend to be the challenges that I, that I face. So, so um, I had uh, hired a CEO coach okay. uh, six years ago. And uh, we flew her down from US, me and my, this is for a different company of mine. And uh, we flew her down from US, we had to fly a business class, we had oh, to wow. send her to Delhi and Agra. And wow. Because otherwise she wouldn't come, right? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. We needed her for two days. She's like, hey, just for two days coming to India doesn't yeah. make sense. We said we kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. gave her like, okay, no, come <laughs> as a vacation and then also spend time with us, yeah. right? kind of a thing. And uh, she spent two days analyzing our day. She spoke to some of our teammates. She spoke mm -hmm. to us. She spent some time with us. And then she told me something very interesting. She said, Ashwin, you have the easiest job. As the founder as the CEO, you have the easiest job. And I was like, uh, thank you. <laughs> like, can you, can you, would you mind uh, clarifying that? Yeah. So she said, hey, you don't have to do stuff with your hands. Yeah. Right? You have teammates who do stuff. Mm -hmm. All you need to do is hold them accountable. Mm -hmm. And if, get them to commit to something, mm. then get out of their way, mm. come back in, Later yeah. on, check on what they've delivered. Sure. Like, that's all you need to do. Like, uh, just a very nice to-do list of sorts. I'm like, I mean, that made it sound so... It sounds so simple. <laughs> so simple. Uh, <laughs> but if you actually go down to it yeah. over time, as you start building processes, mm -hmm. it actually starts getting simpler, yeah. right? Uh, like, I remember uh, when we were much smaller. So today, we're almost touching a thousand plus people. Yeah. When we were much smaller... I used to spend a lot more time in the process, yeah. working directly with plans, doing everything with my hand. But today we have processes, we have fantastic people. Yeah, you do. So <laughs> now it's more on MIS, yeah. it's more on strategy, it's more on growth yeah. rather than the day-to-day. -day, right? but, but that's the best part, right? Which is why I'm like, okay, like today, like I'm like, I guess by default CEO, but it's like, <laughs> it's like, I don't want to be the CEO. I want to be the founder. <laughs> Like, <laughs> there's a difference, right? You can, difference. you can like move up, exactly. Like I want to be the vision person. I want to be the strategy person. That's fun. That's great for me. I like to sit in a cafe and <laughs> sip a cup of coffee and dream. <laughs> and, you know? But it, it, it takes a while to get there. Exactly. Slowly absolutely. and steadily. Yeah, yeah. Right? Absolutely. Uh, while you were growing your first business and you're coming this business, what is like two things that have, which you've learned, which if you didn't start a business, you would never know? If I didn't start a business, I'd never learn. Okay. That's a tough one. It's a tough one. <laughs> I can't think of like, you know, the other way. Okay, I will say this though, true responsibility. I think that uh, as a founder, like at the end of the day, you are that line of control. You are, if, and I've seen this over and over again. If things hit the ceiling, if there's a problem, if, you know, whatever happens, people come in front of you and they're like, they'll throw their hands up. And they'll be like, you know, luckily, again, my team does not do this very often. And they're great at, you know, sheltering me from that. But a lot of the time, it's like, throw your hands up and money is the solution. <laughs> That's what it means to Been be there, like, done that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, most of the time you don't have a choice but to say, fine, okay, like, go ahead. Um, but true responsibility, I think, is really learned when you run your own business. Um, so that's something that I don't think I would have learned otherwise. Um, anything else? And anything else? Uh, I don't know. Um, it's a tough one. There's a lot of stuff that I've learned, but it's very hard for me to envision whether you could have learned it outside. I, I completely get it. Yeah. So one thing uh, that I have learned yeah. is whenever there is a fire, yeah. 
everyone around is running helter skelter and at that time you have to be the calmest person in the room okay right so when shit yeah. is the fan yeah calmest person in the room yeah. when enemies at the gate calmest person yeah. in the room and you know you, you have, because at that time you have to analyze the situation you have to come up with a solution deploy it quickly yeah. so when there is a problem mm-hmm. i am super calm yeah. when there is no problem that's when you're nuts <laughs> and process is not being followed yeah. oh my god <laughs> then people see the worst of me that i like, want because that that really like that yeah. that land that that's actually i don't know if it's my weak point or not but that really gets to me right yeah, like right. i lose start losing my cool at that point like the simple process why i don't know but when actual shit is hitting the fan <laughs> cool as a cucumber you know, talk to the client whatever yeah. what, whatever it takes to solve yeah. the problem I like but that. i think that i wouldn't have learned if i probably didn't do business and two i think is uh, and this is probably for my kids and business yeah. is patience patience yeah yeah patience is a big one and I, i'll tell you where it really helps when you're looking at a company over a longer period of time mm. you will be working on things today mm. which will not see light of day for 1 2 3 5 years you're working yeah. on strategies projects whatever which immediate is nothing yeah. and in the long term there's something so i was interviewing uh, a ceo and that's something i asked him hey, what's your biggest challenge that you face mm. he said solving short term problems while thinking of long term impact that's and i was really like yeah. and i'm like that's the reason i do this because yeah. somebody asked me hey why are you doing this like yeah. you know this is not your business you're not a podcaster or influencer or whatever it is why are you doing yeah. breaking the ceiling yeah. i'm like i get insights like this yeah. where where am i going to get insights like this like that's insane i, I may do a four year mba and i may not find insights like yeah. this right Absolutely. and um, so we are we are creating another ip that they are going to be interviewing billionaires wow okay like all the billionaires in the sure. country let be konal shaf cred sure. or dr velumani of thyrocare yeah, or yeah. vss money of just dial you know th- that's yeah. the cadre of people again it's nothing to do with food sure. it's nothing to do with equinox labs sure. or any of my businesses yeah. so again somebody asked me why are you going to spend all that time money yeah, effort yeah. I'm like, look at the insights I'm going to yeah. get. Imagine an hour with Kunal Shah. That's not. And picking yeah. his brain. Yeah. That's it. Like, I don't even care if nobody watches anything. Just that is worth so much money, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? That's and true. what is something that uh, any of your mentors, anyone has taught you yeah. that has changed your way of thinking? Changed my way of thinking. Um, I mean, business-wise or just like any-wise. uh i'm thinking i'm thinking about like pivotal things pivotal yeah okay so some so this is again kavaljeet singh said said this to me he's like niharka not enough companies invest in brand right and at the end of the day brand is your moat and then i read this book uh, which he recommended to me and and the book basically said that uh, it takes an immense amount of courage to build a consumer brand before launch and that was essentially what we aimed to do because we've been building this brand for two and a half years so when you spoke about patience i thought about patience but i was like you can possibly learn patience you know outside of that but the thing is that it's not just patience but i think it was like for us a combination of patience and passion that like we believed in this so much that we were like we will work at this for two and a half years and make sure that all the nuts and bolts are in place before even getting to launch So I think that 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 one sentence like really pulled me through. So it's these moments mm-hmm. that define your success. Yeah. Many people will hear the same thing mm-hmm. and not react to it. Mm-hmm. And one in a million may actually pick it up and do something. So uh, 
Kunal Shah of Cred, I, I saw a video of him talking about uh, his theory of Delta 4, which is, hey, you know what, supreme companies yeah. have a Delta 4. And I couldn't sleep at night yeah. that night because that just that thought just kept going through my mind again and again. Yeah. And my biggest curiosity was, is Equinox there? And if it's not yeah. there, how do we get there? Sure. So we did a survey. Yeah. We are there, which is yeah. good. But at the same time, I'm like, okay, it's only four. Why can't we five? Like, maybe I'm greedy. <laughs> So innovation has been, yeah. you know, at, at core and um, somebody taught me one thing. I was one day very upset that many of our competitors were copying what we we're doing. Mm. So one of my mentors told me that, hey, you have to innovate mm. faster than other people can copy. Right. Yeah. So a year later, uh, we started innovation team. We, we do a lot of uh, innovation with at Equinox. And uh, my sales team was getting very frustrated yeah. because we had launched two, three new things. And a year later, all our competitors had copied it. And they were very pissed off. And I was very cool. They're like, how come you're not angry? I'm like, one second. If they're copying you, yeah. it's because I'm like, if you're going to copy somebody, who do you copy? Number five or number one? Exactly. If they're copying you, yeah, you take it as a compliment yeah. to yourself, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, flattery, uh, imitation is the best form of flattery. I said, if somebody's copying you from the industry, we should take, a, take it as a pat on our back. Absolutely. So, yeah, But yeah. it's taking these little nuggets of information, nuggets of truth, nuggets of insight yeah. and doing something with them is very very critical so i always like asking people like hey what was the something that you that learned pivoted, like, that pivoted yeah. you like yeah. uh, like in terms of productivity yeah uh the beginning of pandemic i started using a standing desk mm. Change. change the way yeah. i work i i cannot sit and work yeah. like right now you'll never see me sitting on a laptop uh, doing this i'm I, glad you got a break right now yeah now i know this <laughs> If it was my, if my team wasn't there, don't be surprised. This would be like standing <laughs> an extra bar or that would be me. But that would be cool. That yeah. would be cool. Maybe the next time one, guys, yeah. setting next to a bar, standing yeah, stones. Yeah, 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 for sure. They'll have to manage all the yeah. <laughs> angles and the mics yeah. and everything. But, but I realize I think my best when I stand. So yeah. what is your productivity hack? Okay, so productivity hack. So I learned this from a friend of mine. Um, basically, like, like blocking time out on my calendar. So it's literally like, I know when I wake up, okay, I know that I have to do X, Y, Z. So firstly, I have a to-do list, like, you know, all the random crap that you have to make, like one phone call for or send one message for, but requires daily input from you. So that I block out, like, say, like, usually the first one hour of my day. So that just goes into, like, daily follow-ups, and I'll make notes on my uh, calendar, and that's fully updated. And then every day it's like, okay, like I know that I have lunch at 12 every day. So I'll like block out an hour for lunch or 45 minutes for lunch. And then I'll start scheduling my day. I know that I have to achieve X, Y, Z. Usually I don't get to 100%, but I get to about 70 to 80%, which is great. And then I like, I'll like whatever's left over, I'll move it to the next day. So that's my productivity that's hack. Cool. Like basically just blocking my time. So I uh, so I have two thoughts around this. One yeah. is uh, in the last six months I had gotten super into time blocking. Yeah. And to a point where I divided my day in 30 minute slots. Okay. And my entire week used mm -hmm. to get booked. Hmm. So if I look at a Monday yeah. till Friday, six, seven, eight o'clock, my calendar is booked. And I used to then color code it. And I was very proud of this, right? And I, and I was like, and I was telling everyone around it, like I made a video for my team, like this is how you do it. And uh, one day I landed up showing this to one of my mentors. Huh. He looked and he's like, ah, wonderful. And he's like, uh, by this, when do you think? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, that that was like, you know what? Absolutely right. Yeah. I've changed the way I calendar now. Uh, I was talking to somebody else a few yeah. weeks ago, and they said, hey, you know what? I don't do my first meeting till mm. two. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just don't do my first meeting till yeah. two. My outside meetings only start by two o'clock. Yeah, same. That's exactly what I. And do. I was like, 
yeah. I need to get there. Like, how quickly can yeah. I get there, right? <laughs> and, uh, but it's these small, small habits yeah. that actually get you to yeah. success. The habits, rituals, yeah. as you call it. And if once they become second nature, hmm. it becomes so much easier to you know follow them, yeah, right? Yeah. And Absolutely. you mentioned earlier that uh, working out was your is, my drug. is your drug. So how many times do, a day do you... A day? I wish. Once a day <laughs> I wish. <laughs> no, but I do. Uh, I work out about four to five times a week. I keep it super flexible. Um, I now have started going back and doing yoga. And I have a trainer and, you know, just I need adrenaline. So I've like been a runner pretty much my entire life. Um, so I need to do like some form of cardio or sprints or functional or something. Like if I feel like if I sweat... Mm. I'm golden. Like, <laughs> and, but uh, having that time to yourself and Absolutely. working on yourself. Absolutely. So it took me yeah. 15 years to get there. Wow. Okay. But now that I've gotten there, you can't get out of there. There is yeah. there's no going back. Right? So in fact, the fascinating thing. So, so I read. I don't know if you've read Thrive by Ariana Huffington. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that book. I love it. So she she spoke about a cornerstone habit. And for me, working out is a cornerstone habit. If I work out and if I'm regimented with that, the rest of my life falls very easily into place. So again, that's how I dealt with the depression. That's how, you know, that's how, like, if, I'm, if I've worked out, I'm focused. I know that I'll get to work and I'll, get, I'll just get stuff done. I know that my food habits will fall into place. My sleep will fall into place. If my friends want to hang out during the week, I'll usually say no. <laughs> so, so, so yeah. what happens is many people think that a workout hmm. is for physical fitness it's not i think it's yeah. as much for physical fitness Absolutely. as for mental fitness it is because that one hour you're not thinking of work you're not thinking of personal life you're just focused on, on yourself the physical pain yeah and you know you're just focused <laughs> on yourself physically yeah. and mentally right yeah, yeah, so uh, i used to run every day yeah. only time i used to listen to podcasts or audiobooks uh-huh. and then i uh, then I, I that habit i couldn't sustain for long sure. then i made a small change because to love listening to podcasts and audiobooks, I would only listen to it when I went for a run. Oh. So that helped me change it around and okay. it was I used to run seven days a week. No way. And because that's the only time I could get to listen to Audible yeah. or a podcast, right? Oh, so that's awesome. I used to get up and like, oh, I have to still finish yeah. that thing that oh, the guy was talking about. I really want to know what happens next. Yeah, 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 right. Sure. And most of the books I hear, I mean, read are yeah. non-fictional, but nonetheless, uh, something I always wanted to know more about. So that was a habit that, uh, it's called habit stacking as well, right? So you link one habit to the other and that's helped out uh, quite a bit as well. Yeah, 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 absolutely. What is uh, the one piece of advice you would give a founder who's entering a food business or any business? Or any business. It's really, really cliched. And I mean, I'm still yet to see the fruits of our labor. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I will say this, that like, if you really believe in what you're doing and if you feel like, like that's what you want to do if you're clear about that. Uh, one, I would also say that spend a lot of time trying to find it um, because that is a lot of happiness. But two, once you've found it or if you've been lucky enough to find it, um, have the patience and have the courage. Keep going, keep believing. It's really cliched, but I think I realize that now that like, wow, like whatever said and done, like we wouldn't have even launched this brand if if we didn't have so many people just believing in it day in and day out. You mentioned earlier that your father is an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. What is something that you learned from him? So in fact, uh, that, that's another reason why I believe. So when he started his journey, he was very young. He was 22, 23. Uh, and he set up a factory. He, he runs a chemicals factory. 
Um, so he set it up and, uh, and it basically failed, it bombed. And he didn't have his technology in place, none of that. Um, so for five years he was bleeding money and uh, he basically was at this stage in his life and I think I was just born and, and he was like, I've literally lost all of the family wealth, I have nothing to fall back on. And in his head, he always tells me this. He's like, Niharka, I always thought that like, Achha, gaadi to chalana aata hai na. I will drive a taxi. <laughs> He's like, Niharka, I used to actually think like that. I will drive a taxi. Uh, but his dad encouraged him. He said, don't worry, go out, take a loan. So he went out, he took a loan. He got the right people in. That was fairly key to him. And then after five years of actually starting, his company turned a profit. So it was... It's like, it still gives me goosebumps. And it's been 35 years now since he's been running this company. And you know, he's, he's, he's been fairly successful with what he's done. To me, like to have that example of resilience in, you know, in front of my eyes sort of gives me a lot of courage every day. Because I'm like, wow, like he, I have a backing today. He did not even have a backing. And he literally was at that stage where he lost everything. Tell me a little bit about patriarchy. <laughs> and your thoughts patriarchy. on patriarchy. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I think I was sharing with you uh, sometime earlier as well that like it's really funny, but like, I mean, I really do feel unfortunately that it does still exist. But the really cool thing is that at least with me, like my family has really grown through a lot of that with me. So, for example, when I was younger, my, my granddad, uh, he did not want me to do a master's. Uh, he, he's like, no, no, basically like you'll be too overqualified for marriage, right? <laughs> but the really cool thing is that he grew with that. So he, uh, a couple of years ago, he, he had a bad case of COVID and he was in the hospital and he was recovering from it. And he literally, you know, held my cousin's hand, my, my sister's hand and my hand. And he's like, both of you have to become millionaires in your own right. Okay, you will not be dependent on your husbands. You will become millionaires. Very okay, nice. Okay, so, so nice. you're just like, that's, that's awesome. Like, that's you know, fantastic. even my mom, she, she didn't want me to go. I studied at a women's college. Um, and she's like, Niharika, if you go to Barnard, you'll become, I'm really worried you'll become a feminist. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and at 18, I really didn't know what to say to her. But now, like, I mean, she is so proud of me. She's so excited every time I have a work thing, you know. Uh, so it's really cool. So in fact, I, I have this, uh, I'm reading Indra Nui's biography right now. And so she was talking, I mean, it's really funny that she's saying the same thing about her mom in the 70s as she is, you know, as I'm talking about it now. But I mean, different people definitely have different journeys, but I still think it's so relevant, right? So she's talking about how her, her sister got into a fabulous uh, college, I think IIM, and her mother threw a fit. She's like, no, I don't want you, I don't want you to go. Um, you know, as much as she wanted her daughter to excel. So she says that this episode is so emblematic of the pressure on mothers in India at that time. One foot on the brake to make sure their daughters were, were protected and well-mannered. And the other foot on the accelerator to help their girls gain respect, independence and power. Amma's social sense naturally gravitated to the brake. Her dreams for us pressed on the accelerator. Beautifully worded. Yeah. Beautifully worded. And I thought that that's so true. Absolutely. So while you were growing your business, did you ever see this as a concern? Uh, did you face any uh, issues of you being a female founder? Um, you know, so fortunately, I think on the female front, uh, on the business front, you know, being a woman in business, today doesn't seem that challenging. I think the biggest challenging, the biggest challenge is actually just like, 
sorry to be sorry to say this but it's like creeps <laughs> like you know <laughs> but like men i think find it very easy especially like you know men who are either your age or slightly older than you will just be like oh like i'm going to i'm going to hit on this woman essentially <laughs> okay when and how, how do you like, how uh, do you fend those off don't reply <laughs> don't. and i think social media has just made yeah. it amplified the problem a lot more absolutely right? absolutely yeah. i mean it's uh, it's one of those things right like it's kind of it's it's a catch 22 for me sometimes because i know that i have to be the face of my brand but at the same time it's like i don't want to be i like like one of the concerns i think is a female founder is that hey if i'm the face of my brand will men creep on me and unfortunately you know i think all women that you would have interviewed or met would have had instances you know of that most of this conversations offline but yeah, yeah, yes yeah. i have a lot of female founders have shared that with me yeah, and uh, i think the on pre the presence on social media is almost a double edged sword right it's needed because it gives you uh, access to a lot of people it gives a lot of people access to you right which is good and today people do connect with people more than brands mm. right so you will have more followers than your company mm -hmm. company's account because people want to see what other people are not doing what not other brands are doing right? especially yeah. on social front right sure. so elon musk will have way more followers than a tesla, tesla. right and, and all the other leaders as well uh, but at the same time that opens up a door for uh, racist comments sexist comments right and uh, as you get more popular and as you get more vocal mm. you start seeing the dark side of yeah. the internet the dark side of social media kind of you know creeping in a lot more yeah. and uh, but i'm i'm very glad that we we spoke about uh, this topic yeah no me too you and mentioned that there were chemical business mm -hmm. why didn't you join that it didn't speak to my soul <laughs> and No, that's like, a very valid reason. Yeah, right? uh, I did join yeah. my family business. Oh, you did? Okay. I was in it for six months. Yeah. And then after that, I quit. Okay. Uh, when I say that, people think, "Oh, the business was bad." Yeah. I'm like, no, business was great. Oh, yeah. people are bad. People are great. Yeah. The problem was, and this is going to sound funny, was my last name. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's a very it's true unusual last name. Yeah. So no matter where I went, mm -hmm. the minute I introduced myself, hmm. they'd be like, "Oh, are you? Are son? you this one's son?" Yeah. And I'd be like, "Yes." Yeah. Then the next fifteen minutes, half an hour. Oh, yeah. he saved my job. Oh, he's come to my factory at like twelve hmm. o'clock at night, and hmm. he did it. You know, like all what I call old war stories. Yeah. And the what I have gone for that that point is gone. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and uh, but I realized something that uh, if I had to. do something different if i wanted to uh, have my own name mm. i would have to do something outside that yeah. right Absolutely. and that's something that my fa father had taught me right yeah. from early age right so even my conversation with him for leaving a fairly sizable family business was mm. literally 30 seconds yeah. but he understood he and the entire family understood and my mom understood that why i'm doing what i'm doing what i'm doing and they encouraged me saying you know what yeah. good good what you want and uh, in the last 17 years mm. i've started 15 businesses Six have failed. Wow! I'm very open about my failures. Yeah. But simple reason is every failure has taught me something. Absolutely. Now, some the one of the failures was a uh, product market fit wasn't there. Mm -hmm. Now the failure was my there was no product founder fit. Mm. I wasn't fit to run that company. Yeah. Right. One was ethical reasons. Mm. I'm not going to jump into the <laughs> what ethical reasons. Right. To the government. So sure. I think <laughs> lesser yeah, said the better. <laughs> right. But from each of those failures. 
I learned things which were able to make my other companies more successful. Sure. I sold off to and I'm running seven. Wow. Right. Uh, but the most important part is I still never feel tired. I never feel this thing because I love what I do and yeah. I love how I spend my time and I love who I spend my time with. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you have an amazing team around you. Yeah. That's exactly. it. Like, that's what drives you. That's what motivates Absolutely. you. Absolutely. You know, that's what you want to spend your time with. Yeah. Right. Uh, as you grow, what culture would you want your organization to have? Like, what are the three words that would define your culture? Either today or yeah. in the future. Um, uh, passion, definitely. Responsibility, that's a big one, I think, for Indians. Uh, and transparency. Excellent. So, I think that's, those are really good. Uh, as you grow, transparency becomes more difficult mm-hmm. because of which having it has the largest impact as well yeah. right and uh, responsibility initially has to be taught yeah. and then it will scale so i've yeah. <laughs> i've seen that right so yeah. you can't assume that everyone who comes in is responsible yeah. so so like trust you can start with trust a person 100% and mm. if they do something untrustworthy you drop it down responsibility assume the person not responsible and help yeah. create systems which actually build the responsibility and build that accountability. In. And I think those are things that will definitely help you. Yeah, but I think that culture scales that responsibility as well, right? Because the culture is like very, I mean, with my team, like they know that they have to come to me with a solution, which is what responsibility is. <laughs> Last year, we did a survey at our, on our foundation day for all our uh, teammates. Mm-hmm. And we did a survey with all our customers sure. on why you like working with Equinox. Mm-hmm. So on our customer side, it was friendly and flexible. Yeah. It wasn't pricing. It yeah. wasn't, oh, you can collect samples from everywhere yeah. in the country. It wasn't <laughs> that you have the best machinery. Yeah. None of that. It was yeah. your team is friendly and your team mm-hmm. is flexible. So when I call a few people and I'm like, what do you mean they're friendly and flexible? They're like, we like talking to your teammates. Hmm. They're pleasant people to talk to. We look forward to those. We you know we look forward to those conversations. Yeah. They add so much value. Yeah. And flexible meaning, I said, what do you mean they're flexible? Hmm. They're like, we can call them up at 11.30 at night and they pick up a phone. We call them on a Saturday or we call them on a Sunday. They'll yeah. pick up our phone. Mm. And if there's a sense of urgency that we have, they will reflect the same sense of urgency and they will do something That's such for a us. hard thing to scale. Absolutely. You know? It is very, very hard to scale yeah. that. But that's where culture comes in. Yeah. Because now this has become one of the tenets of our culture. Mm. Saying that, hey, you know what? Like in every office, every cabin cubicle, yeah. we have the words CX. Okay. Nice, big, bold, plastered on everywhere. That stands for customer experience. So anything that we do, discuss, decide, yeah. how is it impacting that? Is it making that better or worse? Sure. So the other day we we're talking about this saying, oh, we'll save 5%. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but oh, this is going to go for a toss. Customer will now have to do one more additional thing. Sure. Like, no way in hell. It's yeah. make their life easier. It's okay. Spend more 5% is fine. So having that clarity and everybody in the team having that clarity yeah. becomes critical. And right from day one, yeah. onboarding people who reflect those core values, mm-hmm. reflect that culture, and even offboarding people yeah. who cannot resonate. Because see, when you onboard somebody, you can't understand whether the person is going to understand all of those. <laughs> we look for some basics, of course. Yeah. Right? But over time, if we see people are exhibiting values which are not similar to ours, yeah. it's not their fault. I don't even ever blame them. I said, you may actually thrive somewhere else. Yeah. Right? And Definitely. I have made a mistake of having bad leaders in the organization for long. Yeah. Because they're performing well. Ah. But they didn't have core, I mean, they didn't imbibe all our core values. Okay. They're performing really well, yeah. but they were spoiling the culture. Mm-hmm. And one big, my one of my biggest failures has been not getting rid of those people earlier. 
So now I am hypersensitive to culture. And if people are not a good cultural fit, it's perfectly fine to part ways. Let them know, hey, here's your 30, 60 day notice and thank you. Obviously, work with them first to get them a chance, work on improving them. But some things most people do. And culture is very, I feel like that's inbred. It's, it's key because see, today that's what differentiates you from any other brand. Because today there are so many other companies that do exactly the same thing you do. There are going to be so many companies that are going to make sauces. They may copy your recipes. I remember Aditi telling me like, oh, I've put the entire ingredient list there. I've put everything there. Somebody wants to copy, please. This is my recipe. But you they can, can right? Like it's, it's regulated by Fasai. Like, I mean, what can you do? But that's also like where like innovation comes in. Like, so we have this thing that we say this internally to each other a lot. We say death by a thousand innovations. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one, dead by a thousand innovations. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. today, what is that one thing that would differentiate Bombay from others? Is that the one, one thing. Yeah, the one thing. The one thing. Uh, I think it's um, it's the way that we look at the same thing that everybody else is doing. So, I mean, you picked up on this, right? Like, everybody is making sauces and dips, but why is Bombay different? Because Bombay is making a kokum dressing, because Bombay is making a tamarind dip, because Bombay is leading with innovation, uh, whereas, you know, the other guys are trying to reinvent the wheel. Love it. And it's this that is going to not just separate you apart, but also be something that people are going to remember you for. And if you innovate fast enough, yeah. other people, till they copy you, you're already on your third iteration of yeah, something yeah, and they're yeah. still trying to copy your first one. Yeah, yeah. Right, so I think that's definitely going to keep. Uh, but that's also like why it's innovation at many levels, right? Because today someone can copy a kokum dressing, but they can't copy Chef Aditi, <laughs> right? They can, they can copy. You know, like we will give them our packaging solutions to copy, but they can't copy our brand because there's been too much thought that's gone into that brand. And what is the largest challenge that you, as a founder, are facing today? Hiring. Hands down. <laughs> it's very surprising when uh, when I interview a lot of founders and if I ever dissect, you know, where they spend their time. Yeah. I, for the first few times I was surprised and now I'm not. They spend more than 50% of the time in HR. Yeah. Yeah. And for sure. Which is very, very interesting to see that how much time is spent in HR. So the other day I was looking at this uh, uh, meme that, hey, you know, where do founders spend their time? Yeah. The funny one was like 50% of time sending OTPs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My team over there will respond because I know how many times in a day this I get those calls so like OTP. It, it's not even hi, hello, good morning, nothing. OTP. OTP. <laughs> like, <"Hey>, OTP. <laughs> right? And, uh, Please start a founder <laughs> meme page. <laughs> exactly. And uh, that and the, the other day we had... Uh, I had to literally sign 500 documents. Oh my God. Like back to back. And I really took a photo. I was about to tweet it. Unfortunately, some of the stuff was confidential. Yeah. <laughs> but the amount of things you have to sign because you're still yeah. in India, right? You just signature. have to physically sign yeah, stuff. Yeah, you have to sign. Yeah. Even though it's checked by somebody, filled by somebody, you have yeah. to sit and sign like, yeah. I had to sign 500 documents yeah, the other day. Yeah, it was yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. Right? But all that being said and done, uh, while there's a lot of drudgery that yeah. people don't see founders going yeah. through, I think uh, the biggest advantage of being a founder is the ability of where you spend your time. Oh, definitely. Who sure. you spend your time with. For sure. Right, so that, that, that quantity and quality can be defined by you. Yeah. But I think the downside of being a founder 
is that many a times you can't discuss everything with everyone. Yeah. Right. So I'm actually working on a solution around that, which I mentioned, okay. like the founders meet, founders something, yeah, right? Yeah, where yeah. Founders can get together and just nothing else, just crib. Yeah, just <laughs> no, crib. No solutions just like, let's also. Cry just to crib. each other. <laughs> right. And uh, so on this journey of uh, you know uh, starting a new company, uh, recruiting a team, two and a half years working on launching a brand, which by the way shows me the amount of thought that has gone into branding, and I can see the outcome of that as well. Uh, how has that changed you as a oh it's made me okay so i didn't realize this actually till uh, till again my team told me we were drinking after the launch and uh, and we were all talking about like how when there's chaos happening um like you know different people are reacting in different ways and aditi looked at me and she like ng i think that you've nailed it you've nailed being calm in chaos nice and i was like i was like this is perfect actually that's so true because like my first bout sent me into depression <laughs> and now it's like i keep myself like sheltered a lot from you know the work stuff Good. i mean mentally right. yeah no. otherwise you're all yeah. <laughs> there right i mean you have to yeah. the, the downside of again being a founder is there is no off day there is there no isn't. like oh, for sure saturday not. sunday your your mind is on yeah, stuff yeah, is yeah. going on i'm always working on the weekends i find it very hard to switch off and yeah. like that's been one of my challenges like yeah. i'll be up at 1 o'clock 2 o'clock at night thinking on something yeah. the other day i got up at 4 because i thought of something some metric and yeah. i'm like okay my i think my team should start doing yeah. this way and i was going back to sleep and i'm like you know what crap i'm not going to i'm not, when i get up i'm not going to remember this yeah. and i'm not going to be able to remember this exact thing i literally got up typed up a message like guys and then went back to sleep yeah. couple of people messaged me like what the hell are you doing up at 4 in the morning like what are you doing at 4 but yeah. i couldn't sleep till i didn't type it out i couldn't sleep and which is just no so it's very rare for me to find somebody and i want to learn yeah. how do you switch off completely like like even on our vacation yeah you're on no you're always on you're doing something you're researching you're doing something sure. so i've still not been able to crack that switch off yeah and i think it's a weakness i don't think it's a strength at all i think it's a big weakness i mean i i mean i see where you're coming from but like i think i don't think that i switch off as much as i i don't let it bother me as much like i'm always on but i'm like okay like i'm super plugged in but then at the same time it's like i know that at night it's like go to sleep and my eyes close you know and if they close they're out for sure that happens yeah. so i fall asleep in 30 seconds yeah. which is good but the problem is if i if i'm thinking of like an unresolved problem uh, Ah, okay. Then it will keep. You have to divert your mind. So, in fact, I read. I read fiction, and I read crap fiction. <laughs> whatever works, right? Yeah. It literally whatever works. Yeah. Do you know what has been working for me recently? What has? Xbox. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not even kidding, good people. And then, like, really, like at this age, I'm like, but every day, thirty yeah. minutes yeah, at night. That's Xbox. Fair. Yeah. Before that, I used to play on the iPad. Yeah. I mean, but that gets me. Thing. Like, it gets me not thinking about work. you have to divert your mind like i mean it's literally like i mean like there are people who are like no but you know that's that's a distraction that's being but i'm like listen it's okay i don't have to be a purist i don't like want to empty my mind i literally just want to distract my mind because otherwise exactly what you said will happen i will keep myself awake with ambition and, and then fantastic. that's just not uh nihayika thank you so much for spending time and sharing so much of you know uh, your learnings with us uh, so many things that you've gone through a lot of entrepreneurs go through but 
they many times don't get to talk, they don't get to share, they don't get to crib, yeah. right? Uh, so I'm very glad that you bought out uh, therapy, uh, yeah. you bought out a lot of otherwise what would be considered as uh, things to improve upon yeah. and we've never spoken, I'm very glad that you yeah. bought this out and I think more and more entrepreneurs should talk about it, more and more entrepreneurs should have places where they can go and crib when they need to, right? Because I think it's important, it's a part of growth yeah right? because you can't just internalize everything sure you sometimes yeah. just need to share and absolutely I, i'm so glad that you could share yeah. so many things with me and i could share some of my frustrations yeah. with you as well right so absolutely. thank you so much for no that. thank you so much for having me ashwin this is yeah. awesome thank you hey guys uh, i hope that you learned something from the session uh, I, I niharika is younger than me but she's taught me so many different things and a different way of looking at businesses a different way of looking at people and definitely a different way of looking at brand I don't think I would have spent two, two and a half years working on a brand before launch. Uh, that's n not been my strategy, but I'm definitely going to take some inspiration from that. And the next brand I launch, I'm going to spend a lot more time prepping on the brand and you know before launching because I think that brand market fit is as important as a you know, product market fit. Anyways, with that, uh, I'll take your leave. I'll see you guys in the next one. Thanks.